It would be great to keep Matthew chapter 20 open in front of you. That would be a great help. Uh, Well, last year God taught me a lesson. I very easily forget that I need to depend upon God in all things. And I'm so prone to pridefully just carrying on with my life as if I can do everything on my own. And so God graciously reminded me that... um, I'm an idiot, (laughs) Uh, that I can't do everything on my own. And he gently revealed to me my limits so that I wouldn't continue in foolish independence. And I remember I was telling someone about this when it dawned on me that this is the fifth year in a row that I've learnt that lesson. Do you ever feel like that? As Christians, we can be so slow to learn the way of Jesus. And we learn the same lessons again and again and again. We are, aren't we, such a messy mix of motives and our characters are full of complex contradictions. Or is that just me? Please, is anyone with me? (laughs) Which is why I love reading about the disciples of Jesus in the Gospels. Because I read about them and I see that they are muddled disciples just like I am. They're constantly getting it wrong. My favourite one is that time when they're in the boat and Jesus says, I mean, quite cryptically, admittedly, he says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples think that it's because they've forgotten the bread. Oh, we, oh, we forgot to bring the bread. They just have no idea what Jesus is on about. And there's the time when they're on the mountainside, there's a crowd of 4,000 people and they're thinking, how on earth are we going to get food for all of these people? Never mind the fact that once before, Jesus has fed an even bigger crowd with even less. They've just forgotten. They are slow on the uptake. They are small in faith. They learn the same lessons again and again and again. Jesus, of course, is very gracious and he teaches the same lessons again and again and again. Jesus doesn't want them or us to remain that way. And what we see in the Gospels is Jesus patiently pressing his disciples towards greater understanding and deeper faith. He gently leads them so that they would follow the way of his kingdom. And that's what we see in this chapter before us today. Jesus' disciples are filled on the one hand with pride, on the other hand with ambition. They look down on others and they're trying to climb over others. They think they are better And they try to raise themselves higher. Again, they're so much like us. And here Jesus warns them and he teaches them and he leads and he guides them. So that instead of pride, his disciples would marvel at God's grace. That instead of selfish ambition, the disciples would be people who seek to serve. May God teach us those lessons today, whether for the first time or the fifth time, or the fortieth time, that he would open our eyes, that we would walk in his ways. So let's begin with the problem of spiritual pride. And it is Peter's pride, I think, that prompts Jesus to tell the parable of the workers in the vineyard. So come with me back to chapter 19 and look at verse 27. So last week we saw there was this rich young man who walked away from Jesus sad, because he didn't want to give up all of his stuff. He loved his things more than God. And as that young man is walking away, Peter blurts out, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? 
Now, there's a sense in which Peter is just looking for assurance. He's looking for some kind of knowledge of what his future holds. He really has left behind everything to follow Jesus. But can you also hear that hint of pride? You know, this guy has walked away, but look at us. We've left everything. Surely we deserve some special reward. What's in it for me? Peter is just like us. Somehow, insecurity and pride existing in his heart side by side. And so Jesus tells this parable as a warning against Peter's pride, having already given some wonderful promises to assure him of Peter's future. So Jesus tells this parable. It's the story of a wealthy landowner who goes out early in the day. He's got a vineyard and he needs some workers. And he finds a crew, they've got nothing to do, and he offers them a denarius, which in those days would be a very generous day's wage. And they get to work. Then Jesus tells us the landowner goes out again and again at several times during the day and he finds people just hanging out in the marketplace and they've got nothing to do. And so he offers them some work too and a fair wage for their labours. Then at the end of the day, he calls everyone together to give out their pay. And those last hour workers, he calls them first and he gives them a denarius for the little work that they have done. You can imagine it, can't you? The first hour workers, those who've been there all day, they start rubbing their sweaty hands together. If these guys got a denarius, imagine what's in it for us. But when they get called, they get given one denarius too. And let the grumbling begin. (laughs) It's the universal catch cry of a primary schooler who doesn't get what they want. And let's be honest, all of us, when we don't get what we want, that's not fair. I deserve better. They only worked one hour, they complain to the landowner in verse 12. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Their skin is burned, their backs would be aching, their knees creaking, their arms hurting. Look at what we've done compared to them and yet you give us the same. Do you get where they're coming from? I mean, whose side are you on here? Is it fair, unfair? Well, here's how Jesus finishes. But the landowner answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. And don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? See, there's the point. That's why Jesus is telling this parable. Of course the landowner hasn't been fair. He hasn't set up a meritocracy He hasn't paid everyone according to what they deserve. But the unfairness here is not the unfairness of injustice. It's the unfairness of generosity. And the problem for the workers is not that they've been underpaid or ripped off. The master has been entirely fair with them. The problem is that the landowner has just been generous to others as well. And because they're so pridefully self-focused, they fail to see this glorious, lavish generosity for what it is. 
And that's what Peter was in danger of missing as well. Peter was so focused on his work, what he had done, all that he had given up, that he was in danger of missing the incredible grace of God. See, in chapter 19, remember the emphatic statement that Jesus made. The disciples said, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And Peter turns around and says, well, I've actually done some pretty good stuff, you know. Instead of marvelling at the God who gives so generously to the undeserving, Peter can only think of what he has earned and what he deserves. And Jesus tells this parable to open Peter's eyes and train his focus on the generous grace of God. See, after all, for these workers in the vineyard, they only ever had any work to do because first the landowner had come out to them and called them. And the same was true for Peter before he had ever given up anything to follow Jesus. It was Jesus who sought him and found him and said, come follow me. In Luke's gospel, we read about the miraculous catch of fish that Jesus gave to Peter. Peter had been out there all day, caught nothing. He couldn't do that on his own. At the end of the gospels, Peter will deny Jesus. And he will need from Jesus forgiveness and restoration that he could never deserve. From beginning to end, Peter's life is saturated and sustained by grace. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And the same is true for us. But it is so easy, isn't it, to shift our focus away from what God has done and onto what we do. So we could look to the spiritual experiences that we've had or the theological knowledge that we have acquired or the fruitful ministry that we've done. And a subtle pride can grow. And so those people who've had kind of experiences in the Christian life, look at the people with all of their knowledge and say, oh, it's just, it's just empty head knowledge. And the theology nerds look at all of the people with their kind of rich experiences and say, oh, they're just such a shallow experience of the Christian life. In the first century, you would have seen this kind of pride and arrogance, maybe Jewish Christians looking down on Gentile converts. You might see it today in the kind of snide, arrogant remarks of a a Protestant about a Catholic. You can have it in the church when older Christians look down on the youth because they're so naive. And it goes the other way as well. The young people look down on the old people because they're just so out of touch. It's subtle, but it's insidious. We ought to reckon with the fact that Sydney Anglican churches have a reputation for a kind of pride about their theological purity. Is there any truth to that? I actually think this kind of pride can grow up in small churches like ours. I call it small church syndrome. And I can call it that because I think I have it. (laughs) You know, we have this deep fellowship, this genuine community. And it's wonderful. But then we find ourselves saying things like, it's just so rare, isn't it, to have what we have? You know, other churches don't pray like we pray. And it can absolutely lead to grumbling. Because what happens when you hear about the big church down the road and the stories of growth 
what God is doing. And you go, well, that's not fair. We're not trusting in the latest ministry gimmick. We just preach the word and we pray and we love each other. Where's our growth? Where's our fruit? We deserve better. See how easy it is to become envious that God is generous, not just to us, but to so many around us. And that kind of envy will rob our Christian life of joy. And it will rob Jesus of his glory. See, what should those workers have done? I think they should have run home, said to their brother and their uncle, and then gone next door to their best mate, and then gone out into the marketplace and find anyone they could find. You've got to come and work for this landowner. He'll give anyone a job, and he pays everyone the same. The harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. You've got to come with us. So it should be with us. When our vision is filled with the generosity of God to us, our pride will be replaced with praise. When we experience it in our lives and when we see it in the lives of people around us, we will sing the triumphs of His grace. If God treated each of us according to what we deserve, all we would be given is judgment for our sin. If God treated us on our merit, that's what we'd get. The heart of the gospel is that God is not fair. And isn't that good news? Ephesians 2, we read, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. And Paul writes elsewhere, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the answer to spiritual pride is to open our eyes to the way of grace. And in the second half of the chapter, we meet the problem of spiritual ambition. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus takes his disciples aside and tells them what lies before him. We are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. It's a harrowing prediction, isn't it? And how will the disciples respond to this news of what is going to happen to their teacher and their friend? Grief? Sadness, greed, selfish ambition. Jesus describes the path to the cross and immediately the disciples are clambering over each other, jostling for positions of power. See, their ears must still be ringing with that earlier promise from the end of chapter 19 that they will sit on thrones and judge the tribes of Israel. And James and John have got to thinking, Actually, we might be able to have the best thrones. And hilariously, they send their mum to do their dirty work. They ask Jesus for positions of power and prestige at his right hand and his left. And of course, the other disciples, they're not happy about this. But their indignation is not righteous, is it? They're asking exactly the same question and they're just a bit dirty that James and John got to Jesus first. 
They want the honour and the influence as well. They want to be respected and recognised. They want to be great. And that is the way of the world, isn't it? This sort of ambition is everywhere around us. Just think of the ways that we describe people who've reached kind of positions of success. They've ascended the mountain. They've climbed the corporate ladder. They've reached the top of their field. We grasp for greatness and so often we climb over other people in order to make a name for ourselves. And it's very easy for that attitude to creep into church. We can desire to be at the centre of the community, to be someone who is honoured and respected. We want to be a person of influence. We maybe don't want a real job like joining parish council. We just want the soft power, you know, the person that shapes the community around us. I can tell you it's very easy for this to become a part of your thinking about ministry. See, I have a genuine desire for young people in our church and in this area to know Jesus Christ. He's the best. And I want our youth group to grow as young people and their friends come to hear about Jesus, trust the gospel and are saved. That is a deep desire of my heart. But I've got to be honest that there's also that niggling ambition to be recognised and respected by my ministry peers for my reputation to grow as the youth group grows, to be a person of influence, to have a platform to speak from, to be great. Now, all of this ambition is a complex thing. The Christian philosopher Jamie Smith says that there's a bundle of hopes and hungers bound up with our ambitions, but so often they boil down to the twin desires to win and be noticed. Domination and attention. To win the crown and to be seen doing it. That's the way of the world. But this way of domination and attention is not the way of Jesus. In fact, Matthew's really emphasising that Jesus is on his way. In verse 17, he's going up to Jerusalem, Matthew tells us. Jesus says the same thing to his disciples in verse 18. We are going up to Jerusalem. And that is a literal ascent. Jerusalem is geographically high. You had to go up to get there. But it's symbolic as well. Jerusalem, after all, is the city of kings. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem to establish his kingdom. There he would ascend to the throne. That was his destination. The question is, what way is he going to get there? Well, he says to his disciples, it is the way of suffering. He goes on to say that it is the way of service and of sacrifice. The rulers of this world may lord their power over others, step on the little people to raise themselves up, but Jesus is not the king of a kingdom of this world. Jesus would indeed win the crown, but he would win the crown by going the way of the cross. This way of the cross will involve drinking the cup of God's judgment poured out against all the sins of the world. This way of the cross will be the way of service, Jesus says, laying down his life as a ransom for many. A ransom was the cost paid to set someone free. It was the price of someone's salvation. And this is how Jesus serves us. 
by saving us from our sin, by setting us free from all selfish ambition. Notice though, the answer is not to have no ambition at all. Here's what Jamie Smith says again. The question isn't whether we aim our lives. Our existence is like an arrow on a taut string. It has to go somewhere. So it's not a matter of quelling ambition or of settling as if that were somehow more virtuous. He says resting in the love of God doesn't squelch ambition, it fuels it with a different fire. See, I don't have to strive to get God to love me. Rather, because God loves me unconditionally, I'm free to take risks and launch out into the deep. I'm released to aspire to use my gifts in gratitude, caught up in God's mission for the sake of the world. So the answer to our selfish ambition is to embrace the way of service to pursue the Christ-like glory of sacrifice and the cross-shaped greatness of service. And at this point, I particularly want to speak to the young people amongst us, you know, those of us with their whole lives ahead of them. You can identify whether you belong to that category or not. I want you to be, Jesus wants you to be, people filled with ambition. But ambition for the glory of God in service of the world. So I want to say to you, be fired up to serve God and serve other people in all that you do. And so whether you want to be an architect or a conductor of children's choirs (laughs) or a teacher or a builder or a jeweller or a minister or a missionary, or a diplomat, or a hairdresser, or a teacher, whatever it is, to make it your aim to glorify God wherever you are and to not make a name for yourself, but make a name for Jesus and to love and serve everyone that you meet. For our church, let's be people who are ambitious to serve. One of my favourite verses is in Romans 12, let us outdo one another in showing honour to the people around us. Let's be people who lower ourselves in order to lift others up, in order to enhance not our own reputation, but the reputation of Jesus who has saved us. Let us go the way of Jesus and walk the way of the cross. Of course, as we do that, we'll keep muddling along and we'll keep messing it up This side of heaven, our motives will always be mixed. Our ambitions will always be divided. Even our service of God can become a source of pride and self-interest. But our passage does end with real hope of progress in the Christian life, as Matthew tells us about two more disciples. And these final disciples are model disciples worthy of our imitation. See, there was Peter who was so focused on his own work that he was blind to God's grace. And James and John were so focused on their own position that they were blind to the way of service. Now, at the end of this chapter, ironically, we meet two blind men who have crystal clear spiritual vision. Because they can see who Jesus is. They know that he's the King of David. 
that he's on his way to Jerusalem to establish his kingdom. And they can see who they are. They know they have nothing to offer Jesus. They have no merit. They deserve nothing from him. And so they simply cry out for mercy. And unlike James and John, they don't send their mum to ask Jesus for what they want. They shout it loudly for everyone to hear. They don't care what other people think of them. They just know they need to be with Jesus. And Jesus asks them the same question that he asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? And instead of asking for honour and status, they ask simply for healing and for sight. And receiving the compassion and power of Jesus, they set off on the road and they follow him. Here's a model for us to follow as we follow Jesus. Whether it's for the first time or the fifth time or the 40th time. See who Jesus is. See what Jesus has done for you in laying his life down for you on the cross. And then in view of God's mercy, follow his way of grace and service. I'm going to finish by reading these words from Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.